The first reading is from Leviticus. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Father, reveal the glory of your Son in and through us, your people, so that those around us, our neighbors, would see you, that they may have eternal life, that they may know that you and your Son are one. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So last Sunday we heard from Tim about when the chief Pharisee, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and asked him, how could anyone be born again? Jesus replied that if anyone would be born again, they must look to him. Look to him would be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. Now Jesus alluded to his manner of dying, that should anyone look to him on the cross, believe in him, they will be born again. That is, they'd be scrubbed and scoured clean from sin, their stony heart removed with a fleshy heart to replace it, They will be made into an entirely new creation. They will become a brand new nature. Now, as Tim had mentioned earlier on the service for Lent, we are jumping ahead into John's gospel, into the hour, the hour of Jesus' glory, the hour when Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. Now, by hour, it doesn't mean 60 minutes, but he meant the moments and the events that one Passover weekend that would lead into Jesus being led away to be crucified. The hour of Jesus' glory was so that new birth would become real. It would become real in this world. So that new creation would become possible. So that people would be reborn, reborn by the Spirit, for those who would only look to Jesus hanging on the cross and believe in him. So for the season of Lent and into Holy Week, we will get into the three chapters of John 17, 18, 19, exploring and reflecting on this hour, this hour of Jesus' glory on the cross, which began in today's gospel reading. So I'd invite us now to turn in our Bibles to chapter 17 of John. I'd like to say, first of all, that there's so much, there's so much in this chapter It's worth your own time. It's worth time with your family, with your children, to slowly read through the words of Jesus' prayer here, to chew on it, to digest on them, because it's the only recorded prayer of Jesus that is at length, where we witness Jesus in one of perhaps the most deepest moments of his intimacy with the Father. See, Jesus' prayer immediately follows his saying goodbye, his saying farewell to his disciples, when he gave them his last instructions and encouragement. And as a parting gift, as it were, Jesus let his disciples in on his conversation with God. It's here in John 17 where we eavesdrop. We eavesdrop on the most detailed conversation between the two members of the Trinity. It's here where we press ourselves on God's chest, as it were, and then we hear the innermost innermost pulse of his heartbeat. It's here where we see the sparks of the kindling, the glowing embers in the furnace of God's Spirit, seeing what His plans are, what His purposes are for the world, what His plans and purposes are for you, for me, for your kids, for your grandkids, for every single person in the world right now. Now, Jesus' prayer in John 17 was traditionally called Jesus' high priestly prayer. See, the law of Moses back then prescribed that there was to be only one person, the only high priest, 
who could bring the blood of the sacrifice into the most holy place in the temple during Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. It was the holiest day of the Jewish year when the high priest would come before God into that holy place with the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the forgiveness of all of Israel's sin. Now, as much as John 17 reads, it's like an intercessory prayer, Jesus praying for others. Other commentators describe this prayer as Jesus' prayer of consecration. In other words, Jesus' prayer was as much a prayer for himself as he was praying for his disciples and the world. Jesus was setting himself aside, consecrating himself in preparation for the hour of his glory, the hour of his ultimate sacrifice. Now, in our first reading from Leviticus that Adam had read for us, describes the first time that the Jewish priesthood was instituted, when Aaron and his sons were consecrated as priests. See, the ritual was quite elaborate. It was a longer passage, and we would have not been able to read through all of that in detail. But there was a series of sacrifices that God had prescribed as a means of consecrating Aaron and his sons. Now, it was only in the reading when Aaron and his sons finished offering the sacrifices and was thus consecrated as high priest, did the glory of God show up visibly before all of Israel as fire from his presence came and consumed the offerings. That was the definitive moment that consecrated the Levitical priesthood for its special ministry in Israel. But not only that, not only that, the moment had consecrated the entire nation of Israel, consecrated them to be a community of lay priests. They were to become priests, the holy nation, who were supposed to make right sacrifices to God. Priests who were supposed to teach and mediate the laws of God to the rest of the world. See, the consecration of Aaron and his sons into the priesthood also consecrated the rest of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, to be the set-apart nation to declare the glory and laws of God to the rest of the world. But all of that, the Jewish priesthood, the sacrifices, they were just a trial period. They represented God's pilot project to prepare the world for the final project, for the final priest, the final sacrifice. And fast forward to John 17, Jesus Christ He presents himself before God as one about to consecrate himself for the final task of ultimate atonement. Like Aaron, when he had finished offering the prescribed sacrifices, did the glory of God appear to all of Israel. And only when Jesus would go through that hour of his death on the cross, would the glory of God finally make sense, would appear in its fullest in all of the world. It is in this prayer of consecration that we will see that Jesus will manifest the glory of God in these three unique ways. The giving of eternal life, the giving of God's word, and the giving of God's mission. Those three things, the giving of eternal life, the giving of God's word, and the giving of God's mission. So first, the giving of eternal life. We read in verse 1, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, this isn't so much Jesus out of self-interest asking to become famous or be revered. This is more Jesus asking God to die, 
This is his prayer to God, to be led straight to the cross. But even then, this is not Jesus asking to die per se, but is asking to finish the work that God had given him to do. This is his prayer to accomplish God's mission, which is in large part to die on the cross. Because the glory that Jesus was asking God was the glory of the cross, which is humiliation, shame, brutality, and death. Now, if it's in this way that Jesus will be glorified, how will Jesus glorify the Father in return? I mean, that was the prayer, right? Glorify me on the cross, Father, and I will glorify you to the world. What will be the exchange? Jesus goes on in verse 2. Father, you gave me authority over all flesh, meaning I have ownership. I have the rights and the deed to all of the material universe and authority to do what? Authority to give eternal life. Eternal life. Now, what's eternal life? Jesus defines it, and you would have memorized it when, if you've gone to Sunday school. Eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus. But not in a Wikipedia sort of way or in a master of divinity sort of way. In a way that you like and know your spouse, your best friend, the closest relative that you have that you're very fond of. Eternal life is this very technical Christian concept, but it's, it is at its core, at its bottom, it's friendship with God. It's friendship with God. I mean, there's more to eternal life than just friendship, but it boils down to friendship. And what is friendship? Now, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Friendship is having two individuals, two completely different people, ending up looking at the same thing and then saying to each other, you too? You're into that as well? You're also enjoying that? You're all about this as well? I thought I was the only one. You too? We can be friends. Friendship is at least two people brought together by the same thing, looking at the same thing, heading towards the same thing, enjoying the same thing. That's at least the very bottom of friendship. Now, what could possibly be in common between sinful mortals like you and me and the infinite, holy, and perfect God? How could God and people be friends? It wasn't God's limitless power to do something about that, and he did. Almost two months ago, we just celebrated Christmas, and in it, we celebrated God becoming one of us. God becoming our flesh, becoming our bones and blood. Along with that, becoming our weakness, our exhaustion, our pain, our mortality. And a God such as this, the God of the Bible, this God of Israel, who would befriend us in this radically surprising way, he would give to anyone eternal life, eternal friendship with him. I'll put it another way. Eternal life is the life within the Godhead. The immortal, divine life shared equally between the persons of the Trinity. Eternal friendship, eternal love, eternal community, eternal relationship. And so here it is. This is the glory that Jesus will give to his Father, to the world, is that he is now with the authority given to him. He's sharing this same Trinitarian life to all of humanity. The sharing of this Trinitarian friendship. Love between infinity, between infinity, between infinity. Sharing his thrice infinite love to people like you and me. 
You and I, your kids, your grandkids, anyone in the world can get to know God as Jesus knows God, as the Spirit knows the Son, as the Spirit knows the Father. This is eternal life, that they become friends with God and with Jesus Christ, whom God had sent. Now our modern approach to friendship is often very casual, merely recreational, very non-committal, isn't it? For as long as we're having fun with our friends, have enough things in common, we'll stay friends with them. But this isn't the kind of friendship, the kind of eternal life that Jesus gives to us. Now this leads me to the second point. That's why he also gives us God's word. See, we, we long, every one of us longs for the kinds of friendship that grow us, that stretch us, that challenge us. That challenges for good, that sharpens us to be more effective, that magnifies the best qualities in us and dissolves those that are bad. We call those kinds of friendships genuine, when not only is there genuine regard and interest in the person, not just the things that we can do, but that the friendship is not exclusively based on the terms and expectations of one or the other. See, there will be pushback. There will be a challenge. There will be a conflict. There will be growing pains. And so it is with friendship with God. And friendship with God will always be asymmetrical because he's God and we're not. I mean, in any case, God will not grant us eternal life or eternal friendship with God without also giving us his word. We read in verse 8, Jesus prays, I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth. See, God's word contains all the truth and personality of who God is, laws, attributes, teachings, his revealed secrets. If anything, it's God's secrets. That's in his word. We won't know anything about God unless he spoke to us, right? You won't know anything about your friend unless they spoke to you. Because now and elsewhere in John, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I call you friends. Why? For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. We entrust to our friends our secrets, our deepest uh, thoughts and desires. And God's word in that sense is an entrustment to us from Jesus, a trust to keep his word, not so much as a secret, or to just keep it for ourselves, but as a trust to obey it, to conform to it, to share the word, to live according to the word. Now, there's more to the power of God's word here. In verse 13, God's word actually completes joy in us. It completes joy in us. Jesus prayed for his disciples, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Oh, that's, a, that's a very odd phrase. It's a strange one. Jesus spoke God's word to his disciples so that Jesus' joy may be fulfilled in them. I mean, it's the hour of Jesus' sorrow. Why, how is he enjoying this? How is he finding joy to be fulfilled in his disciples? What did he mean by that? It's like those rare moments that you have when your friend or your spouse or your loved one suddenly gets you, Right? Or that you finally get them. That is, you and your friend get this rare occasion of having the aha moment together that either confirms who they are or who you are, 
confirms or further solidifies their mutual love and appreciation for this or that or your similar sense of humor or this similar passion and obsession over this one obscure thing. You have this aha moment. Joy of friendship in that moment is fulfilled. It's completed in you and your friend when you together embrace the same thing, you enjoy the same thing, laugh at the same thing, appreciate the same thing. You're saying, no way. Like, I knew it. That's why we're friends, right? There's that moment. There's this greater trust now in the friendship. The bond gets stronger and tighter. The love and affection grows deeper and broader. Joy is multiplied and fulfilled whenever it's confirmed with you and your friend, yes, you too. That's right. We're in this together. Now, this is in a real way what Jesus is experiencing whenever Christians get God's word. That is, whenever they get God, whenever they get God who, who God is, whenever we believe and trust his promises, whenever we live according to his word and obey them without making excuses, justifying ourselves, or dragging our feet to do them, that's in a real way what we also experience with God. I mean, have you ever, ever experienced that joy that delight of feeling that you trusted, you believed God for what it feels like for the first time, or that you've truly obeyed him for this very difficult issue that was problematic, that just ate you up for years, or that you finally acknowledged your sin and failure, but you don't just stay there and stew there, but you, you feel deeply how much God's forgiven you and that he's loved you and has welcomed you, and that he will change you for the good. Those are those aha moments. That's when you get God. That's when God feels that he was understood as well. And there is joy, mutual joy, between God and you. Jesus gives us God's word, not so to ruin our fun or make us more religious, but so that our eternal life, so that eternal friendship with God is genuine, so that it's real, that it's happy and healthy, it's filled with joy and love and affection. And then there is more to the power of God's word. And this leads me to my last point. God's word consecrates us for mission. Jesus gives us God's mission. Gives us eternal life, gives gives us his word, and now he gives us his mission. In verse 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now listen again. That's the language of consecration. As as Aaron was consecrated for the priesthood, all of Israel was also consecrated for that task of declaring the glories and laws of God to the rest of the world. And in the same way here, Jesus, the high priest, he's consecrating himself for the hour of his glory on the cross. And by doing so, he consecrated the church. He consecrated you, consecrated me, by the word of God's truth, for a special mission of proclaiming and living out the gospel. Now this brings holiness into an entirely different perspective. We, we normally think of holiness as being morally pure in our thoughts, our actions, our desires. That's true. But holiness is also being consecrated for a special task. For a special purpose. 
There's a consecrated reason why an Olympic athlete can't just eat cake or ice cream or potato chips whenever they want, however much they want, no matter how enjoyable that is. To them, to do that would be equivalent to a morally reprehensible thing to do to their bodies because of their consecrated purpose. There's a consecrated reason why a husband or a wife should not be flirting with anyone or be deeply available emotionally to others. There's a consecrated reason why a political leader should not be casually engaging in civilian affairs or pursuits, that they should have a particular decorum. They should have a particular language about them, a particular behavior. There's a consecrated reason why Christians should and should not be doing this or that. Now the shoulds and should nots, that's a particular, that's a different matter altogether. I mean, that sounds moralistic. That sounds legalistic. But you know what? That's a reasonable expectation. It's what the rest of the world expects of Christians, or at least of religious people. The world expects nothing less. But to our own shame in the church, the world is no longer surprised whenever there's scandal, there's hypocrisy, there's corruption, there's cover-up and abuse in the church. And that is reason enough to take seriously our personal holiness, our institutional holiness, to take seriously the truth of God's word, to take seriously our being consecrated for a particular task and a special mission. Because what is at stake, what's at stake here, is the trustworthiness, the fidelity, and the authority of Christians, of the church to bear witness to who Jesus is, and to speak anything truthful about the gospel. That's what's at stake. But there is Jesus Christ who is seated now at the right hand of the Father, daily interceding for us. That's why we read in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe, that the world may believe. That's the task now, that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we're one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you've sent me, loved me, love them even as you love me. And there's, there's just so much here, and I'd love to unpack this so much more, but the point here is that it's unity. Unity among Christians that will bear truthful and perfect witness to who Jesus Christ is. It's Christian unity that will perfectly proclaim the gospel. Now that's an extremely complicated thing. Christian unity. But listen to what Jesus here focuses on here. He's not talking about necessarily unity of doctrine, unity of teaching, or unity of practice, or church polity, but unity in mission and in love. Notice that the parallel that Jesus is making here is about him being sent by God that the Father loved him. As the Father sent me, I send you. As the Father loved me, so I love you. This to say that the Father and the Son are united in mission and in love for the world, and he prays the same unity for us, for, for you and me, for little Trinity. Yes, the church is grievously divided. We all disagree. We're fighting and bickering. We have our differences. 
And you know what? These are important differences and disagreements. They are important. But according to Jesus, it's possible in this world for the church to be united in mission and in love. And why is that possible? It's because Jesus prayed for it. Jesus prayed for it. And that's possible. Jesus continues to pray for it as he sits at the right hand of God. He prays for you and for me to be united in mission and love. And only when the world sees Christians together in mission, in love and action, for Jesus Christ and for everyone, will the world know that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus consecrated us to be one in mission and love for the sake of proclaiming and living out the gospel. And we have such a great high priest at the right hand of Father daily, right now, praying for you and for me, consecrated himself for this. He gave us eternal life. He gave us God's word. He gave us a mission to do, to be holy, consecrated for this task. Be friends with God through Jesus. Be friends with him. And what is the friendship but to also know his word? He gave us his word to believe it, to trust it, to obey it. And with that, we have a mission to do in love indeed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the world may know that he was sent by the Father and that Jesus is loved by him. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.